Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So here we are coming to the very end of the Christmas season. We celebrated, you all celebrated tonight with Bishop Woos, the, the Mass of the Epiphany. We've got... Uh, the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord on Monday, and that brings the Christmas season to a close, and then we enter right back into ordinary time for a little bit, then back to Lent. This year, Lent starts Ash Wednesday on Valentine's Day, which is so romantic, right? Those of you maybe planning dates with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you go to Ash Wednesday Mass, get your faces covered in ashes. Nothing's more romantic than, you know, you're going to die, here's some ashes. So that's pretty good, right? So here we are. But here we are tonight, and how wonderful to be in the presence of our Lord in this beautiful church, uh, still surrounded by Christmas trees and poinsettias, and it's just gorgeous. Just take a second. Let your heart take it in, just how beautiful this is. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord here in the Christmas season. I've often marveled, I've often marveled when I've sat in adoration, how similar this is, I think, to the first Christmas like for me, like, I don't know what, where your heart goes to when you come to contemplate the Lord in adoration, but for me, it's the nativity that makes sense of it. It's the nativity that makes sense of it. The nativity is, for me, the mystery of the nativity is the thing that most clearly unveils what we're doing here. Here's what I mean. Like, if you were to go hop in a time machine 2,000 years ago to go to Bethlehem to be shoulder to shoulder with all those other pilgrims who were making their way to their hometowns because of the census that Caesar Augustus had called for, right? Bethlehem was swelling with so many people at the time. That's why there was no room for them in the inn. A lot of other reasons, but just suffice it to say there's a lot of people in that small town at that time. And so Mary and Joseph, they find lodging. They find uh, a spot in the cave. That's what the stable was. It didn't look like that. As cute as that is, and as quaint as that is, and how all of us have manger scenes like that in our houses, that's not what it looked like. The word in Greek is kataluma, which is cave. It's like a lower level of a house. It's, it's, it was a cave. They go to a cave. And if you were to be someone in Bethlehem at the time to walk past that cave after that baby was born, and you were to poke your head into that cave and look down at that manger, you wouldn't have seen... You wouldn't have seen God, is my point. You would have seen a baby. And sure, he might have been, I don't know, more adorable than most. Most babies are not that cute. Let's just be honest. I love babies. But most of them are not that cute. They look like, you know, squishy old men, right? He might have been extra cute as a newborn. But no one would have looked in and thought, oh, look, there's God lying in that manger. Just like tonight, there's lots of people walking past Jay-Z, lots of people driving past this church. Lots of people walking past on the sidewalk. And if someone were to poke their head in this church tonight, come in the back vestibule, look in here, and look up at the altar, they wouldn't look at that shiny thing, the monstrance on the altar. They wouldn't intuit. They wouldn't think, oh, look, there's God, the creator of the universe, right? They would poke their head in here, and they would see several hundred of us, several hundred teenagers, looking at this shiny thing on the altar, and they would have thought, that's kind of weird, <laughs> what they're doing. That this, honestly, this is kind of crazy what we're doing. If this is not true, what we believe about the Eucharist, if we, what we believe about the Incarnation is not true, this is a very bizarre way to spend an evening. 
There's a binary option here when it comes to the Eucharist, when it comes to the body of Christ. The body of Christ has always been a stumbling block since the very beginning. The binary option is this. Either he's there, this is real, or he's not there, and this is not real. Either this is the most logical place to be, or this is an utterly irrational waste of time. What a waste of marble if this is not real. St. Peter's Basilica becomes a grand bread box if this is not real. It takes faith. It takes faith to see beneath the surface, to see that, that there's something more than just what's happening at the surface. Like, but this is, this is the lesson that the first Christmas is showing us. If there's anything to be learned from the first Christmas, it's this, that God's ways are bizarre, that he hides himself, is my point. He's always where you least expect him. That's the claim, that's our Christian claim, that God hides himself, that he's where you least expect him to be. Like, no one in the ancient world expected God to be hiding in a manger, to be laying in the flesh of a vulnerable, frail, newborn baby, swaddled, right? We're talking about the ancient of days, the one who banged out the Big Bang, who hung the stars in the sky, the one who knows the names of every star, that one became flesh, we're saying, and is lying in that manger, right? How unexpected, how bizarre. Or how about the man dying on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or how about just tonight, this little piece of bread hiding on the altar in this monstrance? He's where you least expect him to be. And the question, I guess, is this, like, why, O oh Lord, why, O oh Lord, did you choose that? Like that little crest scene over there. Why did you choose that 2,000 years ago? Why did you choose that to be the entry point? Why did you choose that? Frailty. Complete vulnerability. Right? For millennia, human beings have been looking up to the heavens and wondering about the nature of God, the reality of God, the meaning behind everything. Right? Glory to God in the highest. But on that first Christmas, it was glory to God in the lowest. Glory to God in the most shocking of places. Glory to God in the mess. Glory to God in the muck. Glory to God amongst the beasts and animals. Why, oh God, did you choose that? And to take it a step further, why, oh God, do you choose this? To continue to become present to us in, again, an even more vulnerable way. Like, the Eucharist doesn't have hands and feet. There's no arms and he can't fight for himself. He can't defend himself. He's complete vulnerability in the Eucharist. Why, oh God, do you choose total vulnerability, total weakness? This is what, in, in my years as a disciple, this is what my heart has come to as an answer to that, those two questions. I'll just speak for me. Why did he come that way 2,000 years ago, that first Christmas? Because he knows how deeply afraid of him I can be at times. That's the truth. Because he knows how deeply afraid we can be of, of letting him get close, of, of letting him get that near to us. Because here's the thing, with, because we've all inherited original sin, we have deep in our DNA this deep suspicion, this unrelenting fear that we've come to believe about God that 
that he's somehow going to be the one who's going to compromise my life. That if I let him get close, I'm going to lose out in the end. Right? It's how this, all the stories of the gods in the ancient world go. Right? The gods get close to humanity, and humanity like blows up. It's not good when God comes close. And the enemy from the very beginning has been whispering the same lie to our hearts from the very beginning. He's a taker. He's not, he's not for you. He'll compromise you. He's a threat. And then in this life of this fallen world, we learn through our experiences, we learn through our experiences how the food chain of power works, right? That the little fish gets eaten by the bigger fish, then the bigger fish gets eaten by another bigger fish, right? That's how it goes. The little thing gets eaten by the bigger thing. We come to expect, we come to expect that, that somehow, that somehow God's going to destroy us, <laughs> if I can put it that way, such, with such uh, plainness. And so what did he do? He came to us in such vulnerability. Do you know what the word vulnerability means? It means a willingness to be wounded. He came in total vulnerability. He entered the world in total vulnerability, and he leaves the world in total vulnerability. Jesus Christ is the vulnerability of God. He is God's heart given. You know how hard it is for us to give our hearts, to let people get close to us, to let people in, to let people near. We guard our hearts, but not him. He puts his heart in a manger. He puts his heart on a cross. He puts his heart in a monstrance. It's as if he's begging us to hear him say, I am not here to hurt you. No one looks at a little baby lying still in a bassinet, lying in a crib. No one looks at a baby and thinks, that thing might hurt me. <laughs> no one thinks that. And God knows that. And he knew that for me. He knew that. He knew that I would be afraid of him. So he, he came very small. He's saying to us, I'm not a taker. I've come here to feed you, to feed your heart. Right? This is Jesus who said of himself, think in John 6, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you do not have life in you. I am the true bread come down from heaven. Right? Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life. Where was he born? He was born in a town, Bethlehem, which means in Hebrew, house of bread. And where is he lying for his first bed? He's lying in a manger, which is a feeding trough. It doesn't get more obvious. He's saying to us, he's screaming to us in his flesh and frailty, I'm here to feed your heart. I did not come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He knows your heart, he knows your hunger. So in his littleness, in his vulnerability, he's declaring that I've come, I've come to wage a campaign, but a vulnerability. The weapons he fights with are vulnerability and tenderness and weakness because he's a lover and he wants your heart. That's the only thing he's interested in. And the same Jesus who came 2,000 years ago, hiding in the manger, hiding in that infant in Bethlehem, he comes and he hides on this altar. He hides on every altar of every Catholic church. And to be honest, thank God he hides himself because if he weren't veiled, it would be terrifying. None of us would dare to come close. So it's like the Trojan horse. He packs himself in this unexpected, most unassuming package. He says, come close, come close. None of us would have the confidence to come close. And so he hides himself for one reason, for one reason, to get as close to you as possible. 
to get as close to you as possible. Friends, he adores you. I know this whole day we've been talking about the shepherds and the figures around the nativity coming to adore the Lord. But the truth is, before you adore him, he adores you. That's where I think we get adoration wrong. I think so often we think we're the ones who are doing the legwork. We're the ones doing the adoring. And yes, of course, it's true in a certain extent. You're sitting there, you're looking at him, you're adoring him. I get it. But I think that misses the real picture. Like the real reality is that he puts himself there so he can look at you. He finds you adorable. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean that in, in, in the deepest way possible. Like every part of your heart, every part of your life, he looks at you and says, I delight in you. I know you. I love you. Friends, the only thing that's ever going to change the world is if we let ourselves be gazed upon by him. The saints are the ones who endured the gaze of Jesus, who endured his glance upon them, who let themselves be looked upon. I know there's so much stuff in our hearts, junk and, and muck and all sorts of stinky stank that we get really embarrassed about. Stuff that we would rather him not look at. That's the very stuff he came for. That's why we have the sacrament of confession, which will be available tonight as soon as I'm done preaching. He wants to look at you. He wants to adore you. He finds you wonderful. It doesn't matter what you did this morning. It doesn't matter what you did yesterday. He finds you delightful. He finds you delightful. So friends, this love of our God, it is crazy. It is crazy. It is absolutely bonkers what he does, what he did and what he does. That he bankrupted heaven. He emptied himself out in total vulnerability and he comes to you today, tonight, in sheer and total helplessness. He comes as a beggar of love. He's a beggar. He who the heavens could not contain bankrupted himself to be a beggar before your heart. He's just saying, oh, that's all I want is your heart. The manger he most wants is your real heart. So give it to him.